So good to see all of you on this uh, special uh, three-day weekend and graduations and all the good things that are happening this time of the year. We're so grateful for that. Uh, one other announcement, too, is that the last Sunday of the month, we have our grad night, last Sunday of June. Um, so make sure you mark that off. If you or someone in your family is graduating elementary, junior high, high school, grad school, uh, PhD school, whatever it is, we want to celebrate you. Um, and so it'll be that evening, and there'll be some special things. So you could sign up, talk with Pastor John, uh, make sure you keep that in mind. You know, today we're continuing this story of uh, Joseph's brothers now coming to Egypt to get food. You remember the, the story, how it went, was uh, Joseph was banished and sold off as a slave by his brothers. And he gets sent to a different land. He goes through a life, his young adult life is filled with just injustice after injustice against him. And then it comes to a point that God uses Pharaoh and exalts him. He becomes a number two guy because of his ability to interpret dreams and to implement them. And so Egypt, for the last seven years, have been collecting food because the dream that Joseph had was a famine was going to come. And so he's been collecting food, and they can't even keep track. It was so much food. And then now the famine had hit. And all the nations that are surrounding Egypt don't have food. Right? It was, it's kind of a reminder of during the beginning of COVID. Remember, we had shortages and of everything and everything that was missing in the aisles. Toilet paper, spam. It was exciting to get those two things and, and hand wipes and hand gel and uh, things like that that were all missing. And then for a while they said, oh, you know, meat is going to go missing. And, you know, we were looking around. And that, really, but it happened legitimately here. There was no more food. And so the story is now that the brothers are sent by the father to go to Egypt, not knowing Joseph's there. They, they think he's maybe dead or a slave somewhere. But they're going to go, and they go, and they don't even recognize him because Joseph was around 17 when he was sold off by his brothers. He's in his 30s. He's a grown-up. And so at this point, he's a grown-up, and he's in charge. And they go back to get food, not knowing Joseph is in power. Joseph recognizes them. And now he provides for them. And that's that dialogue. You know, when you read this chapter, and this week is, is preparing, I was reading it over and over. And these are one of those passages. It's a story. Um, it seems like there is nothing um, that is very specific. It's not a passage you would pick to do a sermon on, if I had to give one sermon initially. But the more I read it, and the underlying story behind this family, you see the story of guilt. You could feel it as you read this. And they're starting to blame each other. They're starting to blame themselves. The father is blaming himself. The brothers are blaming themselves. And this guilt has been in the family for a generation. And when they think they are going to go and get food, they find something even greater. They find the forgiveness of their guilt, which is so important. You know, there's a, uh, an old book, Legends of Our Times, by... Uh, Ellie Wiesel, who tells a story, you know, he was taken off as a child, uh, uh, taken to Auschwitz um, uh, and uh, by the Nazi regime. And while he was there, you know, he comes back and he becomes a writer and he goes back. And one of the things he notes in his book in Legends of Our Time uh, is that he goes back to his old hometown where he was taken and plucked from. And he goes back to Sighet. And when he gets there, he realizes two things are missing. 
One is the presence of Jews. There were no more Jews, no more of his people. And the second was uh, that everyone there, um, their collective memory had all been erased. They kind of forgot about it. They didn't talk about it. It was too horrific to discuss, to think about, talk about. And so now they, you go there and they say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember those events. And that's how they dealt with their guilt. And he talks about how it was so apparent that those two things were missing when he went back. And many times with our personal guilt, and I don't know what you are carrying around, but this weight of guilt, as we use that uh, um, term uh, often, because it is a, a burden, it's a weight, it's a scarlet letter that we wear. It's this burden of guilt. And it is real, and it is something that holds us back. And today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at guilt from this story. We're going to go through this story. And we see characteristics of what guilt looks like, what guilt does to us. Uh, Three of them that I want to point out. And the fourthly is the solution of the guilt. And so if you would follow along. First of all, we see that the weight of guilt is really unbearable. Uh, It is heavy. It is really a big burden that no one should and would want to carry. Um, It's interesting that uh, they start, when you read the story, they talk about going to Egypt for life or death. I mean, they thought food was what they needed. But what they realize in the story is it wasn't that they needed food for life or death to live, but they needed something greater. They needed forgiveness. They needed to deal with their guilt, not just the hunger in their stomach. And so that same phrase is used. Look at verse 2. This is the beginning of the story, obviously. Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. So Jacob thinks this is a matter of life and death. This is what is important. But as Moses records this, as you read through the story later on, when Joseph replies in verse uh, 18, On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. The same phrase is used about living. And the living that he talks about is something more than just grain to eat. It is about becoming now righteous. It is becoming forgiven. Become uh, uh, forgiven by him. And so what they think they need uh, it's the physical needs. And we often run around in our world, in our times today, thinking just about what am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, where am I going to get my next things. But what we need more than that is something deeper. Someone to forgive our guilt. Um, you think about the, the difference between animals and, um, and people. And it's guilt. You know, probably the one thing that our whole family could sit down and watch together, Right? Uh, the one thing that we will actually sit down and enjoy together uh, for a little bit is YouTube videos about dogs, right, with dogs in it, whether it's puppies, uh, corgis, you know, just uh, preferably the cute ones and uh, the things that they do. And sometimes there's funny videos. We've all seen them where the dog's just sleeping away or the dog is doing something funny or the dog is making a mess. And, and the owner might get mad, but the dog has no guilt, and that's why we love watching those videos because we say, kind of say, ah, oh, that dog has no guilt. If I could be like a dog, if I could have just be carefree because I carry around a burden of guilt, what is the difference between animals and us? We are made in the image of God. 
Uh, Adam and Eve had chosen to eat of the fruit of good and evil. And now there is a sense of responsibility. There is right, there is wrong, there is guilt that we carry around. Whereas an animal has no care in the world. They just act out of instinct. And so we see this here. That this burden is heavy. It is described as something that is unbearable. It is life or death. Uh, The famed atheist Freud in his book Civilization and Discontent says, Guilt is the most important problem in the development of civilization. This is interesting. It was written a long time ago. He says, The price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. What he's saying is that the more we become civilized and technologically savvy, the more guilt we will have. And we see this happening today. Uh, guilt is something that is unbearable for us to deal with. Though we try techniques and different things, it is something we cannot handle on our own. Secondly, the weight of guilt, it paralyzes us. It keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from acting. It keeps us from doing. And it's often in our guilt we retreat. We go away. Uh, If I have guilt that I did something to someone in my family, we sometimes stay away. Or if it's something that happened at work, we avoid those people. If something that happens between me and God, we just want to avoid church. We want to avoid God. Because we think... That if I don't do anything, maybe it'll go away. We lose our sense of righteousness and we feel this sense of shame. And this is what the weight of guilt does. It's interesting. In the very first verse, Jacob, the father, calls his sons, the ones who were all guilty. And he learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? There's that little phrase. Why do you look at one another? Um, In the literal sense, um, he's not saying... Do you have a staring problem? Why do you like looking at each other? That's not what he's saying. What, what he's saying is, do something. What are you doing just sitting there looking at each other? Do something. The New Living Translation translates for us, helps us a little bit. It says, why are you standing around looking at one another? You know, oftentimes it is in our guilt. Guilt will play a trick on us that anytime we feel guilty or we have guilt and something bad happens, we often make the connection. Oh my gosh, I knew this was going to happen, right? I knew this was going to happen. And you can imagine when famine hit the land, they said, oh my gosh, I wonder if this had anything to do with what we did. If God saw it and he's punishing us. And now they are paralyzed. They should be running off. It's a scene where everyone is getting going making their way to Egypt to get some food to survive and these young men are standing around looking at each other they are paralyzed and the frustrated father says what are you doing looking at each other but yet that's the power of guilt you know Satan will come to us he's known as the accuser right Uh, and he will accuse us of our sins now, he won't lie about it. He'll point out real things. Um, and what does that do? That paralyzes us from acting, from living, from loving others, from worshiping God. We're, we're kind of stuck in this way. Um, it's interesting because God the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. So he points out our sin as well. And so we have to ask, what's the difference? 
What's the difference? Well, Satan points out our sin. God the Holy Spirit points out our sin. What is the difference? Well, here is the difference. Satan points out our sin to keep us away from God. He accuses us and says, you are not worthy because you did A, B, and C. Last week you said these things and you gossiped and you slandered. Even in your thought life you think these hateful murderous thoughts. He says, I know, you know, and I know. And so who are you to go and do these things? And Satan sits at the shoulder of all of us and whispers that into our ear all the time. And some of you are thinking, yeah, who am I to go and share God's love? Who am I to tell someone I'm going to pray for you? When Satan is in my ear, said, you don't even pray yourself, man. What are you talking about, right? Um, you know, who are you to say, oh, you know, I, I'm going to help lead a Bible study. You haven't opened your Bible. And, you know, you, you hear all the accusations. And, you know, the, what Satan wants us to do is say, oh, yeah, I'm going to run off behind the bushes like Adam and Eve did and hide from God. And God is asking, where are you? And it is in our shame that we hide. But it is God, the Holy Spirit, who convicts us of our sin. To draw us closer. So he says, hey, this is not the way you ought to live. You ought to go and get forgiven and find now Christ's forgiveness. And we draw closer to God. We draw bolder. And we want to worship God. We want to tell people about Christ. We want to pray for others. So in their dialogue here, it's interesting that the brothers, in their guilt, in verse 28, it says this. Um, so Joseph gives them the grain, he puts the money that they had paid, he puts it back in the bag secretly, they take it back, and when they open it, they freak out. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, he says, uh, my money has been put back. Here is, it is in the mouth of the second. At this, their hearts fail them. Right? This is the conviction. They said, oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. And they turn trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? So you can read the language there. What is it that God has done to us? God is uh, portrayed as someone who is distant, who does something bad towards us. He found out about us. And so this is Satan accusing them, oh, look what you've done. Here is your guilt. And their response is, what is God doing to us? There's a separation from God, whereas Joseph's walk with God is described as one who's much closer. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. He talks about his relationship with God. He says, I fear God. I respect God. I try my best to obey God is the words basically that he is saying to them. And so one group, the guilty group, says, what is God doing to us? Keep him away from us. If I don't hear from God, that's good news when I'm guilty. And then the one who is righteous says, I fear God. I want to hear from God. I want direction from God. And when God the Holy Spirit convicts me, I want to fix my ways and live righteously before Him. The picture we see in Zechariah uh, and the prophet's depiction in Zechariah 3.1 he talks about Satan standing there accusing Joshua the high priest. He's accusing. And later on, he points out all the filth of his garment, and God changes his garment to make it clean. It is interesting uh, that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, 
Before he became a protesting reformer, uh, he was a monk in the Catholic Church. And he was so conscious of his guilt and sin that historians tell us about Martin Luther that during his days as a monk, he would go to confession and he would share his sins, the meticulous sins, the thoughts, even though questioning, was this a sin or not? Is this a sin or not? And he would bring these things up and he would wear out now the priest who is in the other side. And he would talk to them sometimes six hours a day, sometimes up to eight hours a day. Can you imagine if you're on the other side of that booth? You're like, oh my gosh, here he comes again. Right? And maybe they had different guys. You're like, oh my gosh, there comes Martin. I hope he goes. Please go, because this is going to be a six-hour session and I have to I can't even use the restroom he's going to go on and on and on you know I thought this way is this wrong I, you know before God and one thing that he comes to realize uh, about his own guilt is that that it's not something that he is uh, to keep him away but it is something that was going to help him run to his condition of the lack of faith and he describes it this way he says to diagnose smallpox he said You don't probe each and every bump that comes up on your skin. You don't heal each one separately. He realized there was a sin condition that he had that he had to find forgiveness for. So Satan will attack you. And he will want to keep you away. And he will want to keep you away from the things that matter the most. Your spiritual life. Who are you to go to church? And who are you to go and do these things? Your vocation. You might even feel guilty taking a, a day or two off, or you might feel like you didn't, you were cutting corners and someone there knows. Or family life, how you treated someone, and boy, you didn't have a chance to go and find their forgiveness, and you just said, ah, I don't see them. Oh, well, if I don't see them, I don't see them. Or your social life. You wronged someone, wronged the friend, and then you just left it at that. The third truth about guilt is that it lingers. It stays with us. right? It stays with us. It's not something that goes away over time. We often think as time goes by, it'll go away. But this story has been happening for years and decades now. And it's decades later that their guilt is right there at their footsteps. All throughout this story, from Jacob to the brothers, to some of the brothers individually, all of them experience this guilt. It's lingered all the way till now. Remember, we've been going through the life of Joseph and all the hardships he's gone through, the dreams and the cupbearer, and now going, and, uh, you know, going through temptations and, and going through jail and all of these things we've been going through. This was his whole young adult life is gone, it's past. These guys are still living in their guilt. Uh, just to go through a little bit from this chapter, verse 4, Jacob did not send Benjamin. Right? Benjamin was born after Joseph. Joseph's brother with his brothers. Why? For he feared that harm might happen to him. I think Joseph had, uh, Jacob rather had a hunch these boys did something to Joseph. He knew, as every father knows their children, They know their tendencies. They know when they're doing well, when they're not. They know when they're telling the truth or lying. They kind of know. 
And I think as the years have gone by and as the boys, as he see them interact and he could see the guilt in them, he knew something. They did something to Joseph. Not specifically he didn't know, but he knew they did something. They got rid of him. And so when they were going, he said, you can't take Benjamin. The trauma of that experience had come up again. He said, you can't take my other son. Something might happen to poor little Benjamin. You guys go. And so we see this guilt from the father. The sons kind of know that the father knows, but they can't say anything. Later on, when they talk to one another in verse 21, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They talked about this. They remember the distress of his soul when he begged us. They remember the words and the way he begged for life and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben, one of them, even says in the next verse, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. He's blaming them. Like a good older brother would always, right? Told you you should have listened. But his hands were guilty as well. Later on at the end, Jacob himself, he says in verse 36 at the end, All this has come against me. So what had happened is they take him. Joseph recognizes him. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph is trying to test them, so he keeps one. He says, one of you have to stay. Because they said they were honest men. They said, oh, we have another brother named Benjamin who's not here. He says, I want to meet him. He is the one that took his spot. So he says, until you bring him, I'm going to keep in prison Simeon. He's stuck here. And so when they go back and tell him the news that, oh, we have to take him. We have to take Benjamin, Dad, uh, because now Simeon is caught. He's held in jail until we bring him. And Jacob is now mourning. And he says, I'm going to lose all three, and all this has come against me. It was as if all the sins, all the little things that he did to deceive others, is, he felt like it's coming to catch up to him. There was a, a, one of these modern artists that I saw, and there's a little picture of guilt that he said, it's hard to tell, but on the shoulder it says the word guilty on it. Right? And it's almost like it's every time we look back, it's there. There's different ways to interpret this, I guess. Um, and I'm, I'm guilty of not making it big enough so you can't even read it. right? But anyways, it's guilty. right? You're looking back, it's still there. It's something permanent that's stuck on my back. I don't see it sometimes, but when I look over, when I look at the reflection... It's preaching to me. It is lingering. Wilfred McClay had written this article uh, just recently, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in it, this is what he says. Guilt is crafty, a trickster and chameleon, capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. A social critic writes this, talking about what we have to deal with today. Managing to persist and deepen. So it lingers. It doesn't go away with time. And so it's overbearing. It's hard for us to carry. It's, it's lingering in this way. And so what do we do? We find, fourthly, the solution for guilt. 
the solution for guilt says this, right? 1 John 1, 8 tells us that we ought to no longer um, deceive ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He is saying, John is saying, if you say to yourself, and you are just going into denial, we deceive ourselves. If you say you have no sins, you deceive yourselves. And so what we have to do is we can't just deny it. You know, I was Googling guilt this week, how to deal with guilt. And uh, it was the whole page, front page, was articles on ways and uh, ways to deal with this. And I didn't read every page, but as I glanced over, the general idea that was mentioned over and over is something you got to come up with a way, a coping mechanism. You have to deny it. And our culture today now denies it, excuses it, rationalizes it. But the Bible here tells us we deceive ourselves if you say you have no sin. The story of a man who enters, a, goes into a bar and he orders a beer from the bartender. And so the bartender gives him a beer. The man gets the, the cup of beer and he throws the beer into the face of the bartender. So the bartender is irate. What are you doing? And the man who threw the bartender is so apologetic. I'm so sorry. I just uh, have this compulsion to throw beer in the bartender's face. And he says, if you do this again, he says, you can't come back in here. You need to get that fixed. He says, what should I do? He says, get some help. And he kicks him out. A few months later, the same man comes into the same bar, sees the same bartender. He approaches the same bartender, very friendly. He says, hey, can I order another beer? And the bartender says to him, no, no beer for you. Last time you threw it in my face. He goes, no, he goes, I got help. I'm much, I'm at peace with this now. So he reluctantly pours the beer, gives it to him. The man takes the cup of beer and he throws it into the face of the bartender again. And he says, I thought you got help. He goes, I did. He goes, I don't feel guilty anymore after I did this. I feel good. He goes, that's my compulsion. That's what I want to do. And I don't feel so guilty. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what do we do? John tells us in 1.9, if we confess our sins, it's very personal. It's the plural in the first person. So it's, it's not their sin. We might, it might be less offensive. He's talked about in the third person. If they confess their sin, and if we were to read, yeah, them, you know, them. The old people. Oh, the young people. Them. No, he said, it's us, our sin. He makes it very personal. If we confess our sins... In the plural, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The description of God is someone who is faithful and just. Faithful that he will do it. Faithful that he will forgive you. But second part is he's just. He will make sure someone pays for that. You know, he is not like a, a teenager working at a store that says, hey, go ahead, have all the free food. But you say, you, 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 it's not yours. You know, you're just an employee. It's not yours. How are you to give away this free food? Ah, don't worry, just give it away. No, you're still guilty. But it's as if he pulled out his own money and says, I'm going to pay for your lunch today. I know you didn't have it. I'm taking it out of my paycheck. I'm paying. It's paid. And so go. He is just to forgive us. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You know, today, maybe you come in with guilt. And you've approached it by rationalizing it, or you've been trying to strive your way to get rid of it. Work my way to get rid of it. This is what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. And I close with just this verse, right? Uh, Matthew 11. These, here he's talking to those who are running around trying to justify their guilt. And he says that to his listeners, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was the wooden uh, fixture around the neck of a, a, a cow, and it would be tied to another one, and it would hold them in place, and they couldn't go in any other way. It was a burden, and it was heavy. And the legalists of the day said, you have to do A, you have to do B, you have to do C, because you're guilty. And they carried this around. The Pharisees carried it around. They kept putting it on other people. You're so guilty. You're so wrong. Who are you to come before God? And they would put this on other people. Religious people are great at doing this. And they would put this burden on other people. And Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not that it's free. But he now pays for it. He now forgives out of his own pocket. And this is the gospel message. When they go back to Joseph, they think they are going to get food. But they go back to see someone that they do not even recognize. And he offers them eventually something more than they need. Forgiveness of their guilt. And I pray that we as people who have, as Christians, have received forgiveness. will never let Satan accuse us of our wrongdoing but to let the Spirit convict us and change us and make us more like Him. Uh, let's pray together, can we? Uh, so, Lord, we thank You uh, for this gift of forgiveness, Lord. Our, our guilt, many of us, Lord, we, we all sin, so, Lord, we carry around this burden. Many of us, Lord, we, we turn up the music around us so that we don't even hear it or think about it. But, Lord, it creeps up, creeps up in our dreams and our thoughts and uh, how we relate with others, it pops up. And so, Lord, we now come to you to get this forgiveness. If we confess, Lord, you are good to us. So, Lord, we thank you. You forgive us. So, Lord, this burden of guilt around our neck that is heavy, Lord, is all of a sudden it's lightened by you. It is easy. This burden of grace we thank you for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.